God, I pray that we would always make time to hear from you. Uh, God, that we would not assume that prayer is about what we can say, but that prayer at the heart of it is about what you can say to us. God, thank you for your church. Thank you for your spirit. It makes us alive. Thank you for your word, God. It gives us direction and clarity. It gives birth to our imagination. I pray today, God, that your word would give us great imagination for what our relationships can look like with our kids, with those that are younger. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would make me good at getting out of the way that people would see your face, that God, every turn of the page, every word in these pages, God, would not simply just be reading, but opportunities to see your face. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Cornerstone, what's up? As always, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, it's really good to uh, be in God's house, be with his people. Um, I asked Pastor Mo earlier why I was speaking on parenting, uh, and he gave, me some, <laughs> he gave me some insight that y'all have been in a relationship, in a relationship series, that y'all have been talking about marriage, and today we'll talk about parenting. Uh, and for me, you know, we've got two kids. I've mentioned this here before. We've got two kids. We've got a soon-to-be 15-year-old and a soon-to-be 11-year-old. And uh, over the course of our years of parenting, I've always tried to see my relationship, particularly with my older son, uh, as an opportunity for me to grow. Uh, I think that there's so much that children have to teach us. And so today, I don't want to talk specifically about parenting, though I'll reference parenting and my relationship with my kids often throughout the sermon. Uh, but I want to talk about the relationship of those that often think of themselves as capable and those less capable. Uh, because I think oftentimes as parents or as adults, that's how we treat children, uh, those that are less capable than us. And sometimes as a result, those that are less valuable or can contribute less. Um, so I wanna talk a little bit about that. And with that, I wanna start by talking about my daughter. So my daughter is one of my favorite human beings, for real. Uh, she's smart, she's competitive, uh, she's creative, she's honest. Um, there's, there's very few things about her that I don't like. I mean, she is, I am one of her biggest fans. Uh, but one of the things that I think I love most about her, one of the things that make me her biggest fan is how honest she is about herself to herself. My daughter is ruthlessly honest with herself about what she's capable of, what she's not capable of, what she's good at, what she's not good at, what she prefers, what she doesn't prefer. Uh, and she lets you know. And especially if she feels very comfortable with you, she will let you know uh, how honest she is uh, about the things that she, that, that she loves and doesn't love. And I think that there's something so beautiful about her comfort with herself and how vulnerable she often is because of that honesty that she has with herself. But as she gets older and the more life experiences come at her, I can see how she's often tempted to not be vulnerable. The more hardship she experiences, the more betrayals she experiences, the more pain she experiences, to, to whatever degree. I can see how she's often tempted to not be vulnerable, to not take those risks, because vulnerability, as I think I've said here before, is a huge risk. Because essentially, vulnerability is to hand over to another person the very things that they can use to hurt you. But they could also use those things to love you radically. But it's a risk. So the older she gets, the less uh, inclined she is to be vulnerable. I see how she's often tempted to not be vulnerable. A few weeks ago, we were all chilling in our, in our house. Uh, my wife was cooking uh, dinner. I was folding the clothes on the couch. She was sitting at the dinner table working on her uh, homework, and my son was doing something. I don't know where he was, but he was in the house somewhere. 
and we have music playing in the background, and we're kind of just going through the day. That's our normal routine, typically, on a weeknight. Uh, and I just happen to look up at her, and I see her head uh, kind of just slumped over at the table with her books below her. And my, my, my daughter loves to take after-school naps, so I thought that's what was happening. She was just taking her after-school nap. Then I saw that she was... She had her head uh, on the table uh, longer than she usually does. And so I said, I walked over to her and I said, honey, uh, what's wrong? And as she lifts her head up, she's drenched in tears. I mean, she is just, it seems like she had just been sobbing. But of course, we didn't hear. We had music playing in the back. Everybody was doing their own thing. And so I looked at her and I sat with her and I said, honey, what's going on? And she just looked at me. She said, I'm overwhelmed. My daughter is a very high achiever. She's on the the dean's list, the principal's list at school. She's on the safety patrol. She plays volleyball. She's on the drama club. She's a huge, huge high achiever. And so I saw her weeping over her homework, telling me that she felt overwhelmed by everything that she had to do. And while I took the time to console her and comfort her, I said, honey, why don't you go just take a break, go on your iPad, go talk to your cousins, whatever it is, just take a break. I reflected on that moment, and I thank God for that moment, honestly. As hard as it was to watch her uh, weep and cry, I thanked God for that moment because I was thankful that she was honest and vulnerable to tell me that she was overwhelmed. The reason why I was so thankful for that is because I evaluated and took inventory of my own life as an adult and how I don't often tell people that I'm vulnerable and how often I, tell, I, I don't tell people that I'm overwhelmed. And I thank God for that moment. Madeline Lengel, in an interview, once said, when we were children, we used to think that when we're grown-ups, we would no longer be vulnerable. But to grow up is to accept vulnerability. To be alive is to be vulnerable. I love, therefore I am vulnerable. And this is precisely what I want to talk about today. Luke chapter, 15, uh, Luke chapter 18, if you have your Bibles, it might be up on the screen. There's this small little moment where Jesus interacts with adults and with children. But it's interesting because he only directs himself to the adults and he engages intimately with the children. Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. It says, people were bringing infants to him, Jesus, so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them, let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Part of what Jesus is offering us from this passage this morning is that he shows us that his gift of the kingdom, that his gift to the world will be experienced only by the vulnerable. That the gift that Jesus has for us will be experienced only by the vulnerable. A few things that I think we can extract from this passage that Jesus wants to offer us. Things that I believe young people teach us. Again, I know that this talk is meant to be about parenting, but at least one of the aspects of parenting that isn't often talked about is what we learn from the children that we lead. Whether you're an auntie, a coach, a mentor, a mom, a dad, what's often not talked about is what children offer to us or what young people offer to us. One of the first things that I see in this passage and one of the first things that I've seen in my own life as a parent that I believe young people uh, offer us or the way that they shape and form us is young people form us in vulnerability. They teach us about vulnerability. They exemplify that to us. They offer that to us. Look at verse 15. 
Because I think that there's something really, really uh, important and really special that we desperately need to see that is often overlooked. It says people were bringing infants to him, Jesus, so that he might touch them. Now, this story happens in uh, the other synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew and Mark. But Luke is the only one that uses the word infant. Matthew and Mark use little children. I don't think there's a huge difference there from a theological standpoint, but I think there's something practically that I think Luke is trying to show us that perhaps we might not see in the other gospels. Luke uses the word infant, and I think it's because he's trying to show us or highlight the need that infants have. They needed to be brought. They needed to be brought. I don't even need to finish that sentence to know that that will make a lot of us squirm in our seats. They needed. The idea of need is so uncomfortable to a transactional culture. I mean, it's wildly uncomfortable to sit and admit that we have need. So by sheer word alone, when Luke says they needed to be, uh, that the, the infants were brought to Jesus, already begins to unsettle and disrupt the way that we may understand power dynamics. They needed. It makes us uncomfortable. Why? Why is it so difficult for some of us not to only be aware of our needs, but to also acknowledge and embrace our needs? Why? You see, when some of us think needs, we think limits. The things that we can't do for ourselves or on our own. The things that remind us that we are to be dependent on something or someone other than ourselves, God, or other people. When we think need, we think limits. We think capacity. We think, I cannot do this on my own or for my own. I want y'all to do me a favor. I want you to turn to your neighbor to your left and to your right, but don't do the thing that we often do in churches. We often hear the pastor tell us to say something to the neighbor, then we talk over each other, and nobody really hears what we're trying to say. I want you to turn to the neighbor to your left and look at them and say, I need you. Decide who's going to say it first. Right? Decide who's going to say it first. Now look to the right, decide who's going to say it first and say, I need you. And then, of course, after the person says it, then the other person says it. All right. Now listen, a moment of reflection for you. You, you take this for yourself. How uncomfortable was that? Probably very uncomfortable, and especially if you're sitting to someone that you don't know. <laughs> or if we want to be even more weird, Christians, if you're sitting next to someone who's the opposite sex. It's so uncomfortable to tell someone that we need them. When we think of limits and needs, we're overwhelmed with shame oftentimes. We're overwhelmed with shame because in a transactional culture, we've given value to capacity. When you live in a culture that's all about transaction, I give you this, you give me that, there's an exchange. What happens is that we often give value to capacity. How much capacity do you have to give? In other words, the more capacity I have to do a thing freely without anyone's help, the more valuable I am in that culture. If I can do something freely without anyone's help, the more valuable I am to that culture. If in a relationship you are the one that's giving help and not receiving help, or at least if the scales are in your favor that you give more than you receive, then subconsciously, somehow, we believe that we are more valuable in that relationship. Because somehow, in our transactional culture, we've given value to capacity. It's easier 
to be the one that gives help. Not so easy to be the one that receives help. But why is that? Why is it so much easier for us to be the ones to give help, but not to be the ones that admit that they need help? It's because we love to be in power. We love to be the ones that have the control, even in something as admirable like charity. This happens a lot in parenting. <laughs> this happens a lot in parenting, especially when your children are younger and are physically less capable of doing things on their own. As parents, we're tempted to believe that because our kids are less capable physically, that they have less to offer. Because they are less capable, they have less to offer. Now, again, this is a talk framed around parenting, but you can certainly remove children and replace another societally less capable group of people. We think that groups of people that are less physically, oftentimes physically capable, are people that have less to offer to society. Not only does it happen a lot in parenting, but it also have, is happening a lot in this passage. Look, as parents were bringing children to Jesus, the adult disciples rebuked the parents, presumably because they assumed that tending to children was not the best use of Jesus' time at this moment. The adults said this. <laughs> the adults rebuked the parents from bringing children because this ain't the way Jesus is supposed to spend his time right now. Almost as if to say that children have nothing valuable to offer Jesus at this moment. Now remember, historically, just read a few chapters before this, Jesus had been spending his time healing, telling stories, teaching, all the days leading up to this moment. And when the disciples rebuked parents for bringing children to Jesus at this moment, it's as if they're saying, as, as if they're saying, we don't believe that tending to children is what Jesus needs to be doing right now. That's not valuable to him. But then Jesus said something that up until a few years ago, I just couldn't see how radical it was. He says, let the ch little children come to me and do not stop them. Or other versions say, keep them, do not keep them. Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now look, y'all. <clears throat> We can spend months unpacking that, phrase, that, that, that statement by Jesus. Months. But the phrase that stopped me right in my tracks was the part where Jesus says, don't stop them. <laughs> Jesus says, don't stop them. Almost as if to say to the disciples and the adults that were in the crowd, you have authority and capacity over these children. Do not use it to keep them from me. You have capacity and authority and power over these children. Do not use it to keep them from me. Jesus, in this one sweeping statement... Jesus addresses the power dynamics that exist between children and adults, the capable and the less capable. He redefines how power is meant to be used here. And Jesus reminds the adults that while they may have power over children in some ways, children are the ones that understand the ways of God and the kingdom far better than any adult can. Now, you may not want to clap hard for that one, but it's true. 
It's as if Jesus is saying with one fell uh, statement, it's as if Jesus is saying, yes, the children need you to bring them to me. But you need the children to bring you to the kingdom. The children may need you to bring them to me. They are less capable. But you need them to bring you to the kingdom. Why? Because you're less capable. (laughs) What makes children so valuable to Jesus and to the way of life in the kingdom is their awareness of need and their vulnerability. That's what makes them so valuable to Jesus. That's what makes them so valuable to life in the kingdom because they're aware of their need and they're vulnerable about it. A few years ago, I preached at a mentor's church out in Philly and I took my daughter with me. At the time, she must have been like seven or eight, I can't remember. Um, This church has three services. So I knew that at some point, she was going to start getting uh, impatient. She was going to start crashing, and she was going to want to leave. Uh, so in my head, I was planning, all right, how am I going to, you know, parent my way through that moment uh, where I have my responsibility to preach through the three services, uh, but my daughter's going to want to leave. So between the second and third service, I'm chilling in, the, uh, in my mentor's uh, office in the balcony of the church, and I'm sitting with her, and we're having lunch. And I looked at her and I said, Mama, look, if you get anxious or nervous or fearful or you need anything at any moment, absolutely anything, you have full right. I don't know what I was thinking telling her this. But I told her, I said, you have full right to walk out of this room, come down the stairs, right down the middle aisle, make your way up to the stage Tap me on the shoulder and say, Papi, I'm ready to go home. I need you. So here we are. I'm about 10 minutes into my third service, into my sermon in the third service. And, you know, similar to this setup here with the exception that there's one big aisle right in the middle. uh, I'm preaching. You know, I'm I'm going in. And uh, at the time, my daughter was much shorter and the balcony, you know, had the banister, so I really couldn't see past. But I saw the door where she, of the room that she was staying in. And so I'm preaching. I'm going in. And there was a lull. There was like a little moment where, where I was catching my breath. And I just heard the door prop open. like, <laughs> And then I, I kind of see the top of her. She has like big curly hair. So I kind of saw the top of her curly hair uh, along the banister. And then I started to hear the small little footsteps going down the stairs like, And then I see Hayden, my daughter, pop out of the stairs into view, slowly and confident. I mean, she is so, she's a fantastic human being, honestly. She's, like, so confident in herself. And she was just walking. She had, like, a little jean vest on. She, you know, she did one of these. It was cold in the church. She did one of these. And she was walking down the middle, and she was, like, looking at me. (laughs) And I'm just there, and I'm, like, trying to stay locked in. And she's just looking at me. She's like, I'm coming, bro. I'm coming for you, dog. You know? And she, she, you know, we were sitting in the first two services. We were sitting in the front. So I'm like, ah, maybe she's just pulling up to the front. She goes in. And she does it. She gives me like a little head fake. She does one of these. And she just keeps walking. And she goes up the steps. And at this point, everybody's watching her do this. And she comes up the steps. And she, you know, she had like a big tooth missing in the middle. It was just, and she goes up. And she tugs on me, and at this point, I'm like, guys, I'm so sorry. And I'm just, like, leaned over, and, you know, I had a headpiece on, so she's, like, talking right into it. And she just tells me, Papi, I'm tired. I need to go home. Can we leave now? And, you know, it's all up in the mic, and I'm like, guys, I'm so sorry. This is so embarrassing. And I said, hey, I'll be done soon. Just sit right here, and we'll get going. Wow, I was so taken aback. Well, first of all, I was mad embarrassed. But two, I was taken aback by her confidence, her vulnerability to say, 
I'm tired. I need to leave. Look, I think part of the reason why that story is so significant to me and so formative for me, why I believe my daughter taught me something that day, is because it was her awareness of need along with the invitation I gave her. It was her awareness of her need, her willingness to be vulnerable no matter who was watching, and the invitation that her father gave her to communicate her limit, to communicate her need. Let me make this real plain, y'all. Hayden, my daughter, was able to be vulnerable no matter who was watching because her dad told her it was okay to be. Because her dad told her, even though I was regretting that, but it was her dad who told her, it's okay to share with me, no matter what the circumstance, that you have need. And she said, all right, I'm going to hold you to it. What makes the kingdom of God belong to such as these is not their ability. It's their awareness. It's not ability that grants us the kingdom. Awareness is. Why does Jesus say that to experience his kingdom, you have to turn back the hands of time and be like a child? Because only children can easily say to Jesus and to others, I need you. Why does Jesus say you receive the kingdom if you are like this child? Well, because children are the only ones that can say, I need you. True vulnerability always leads toward trust and dependence. If you're just a number in the crowd, if you find yourself to be more distant with your community rather than integrated with your community, if your life is more isolated rather than integrated, if you're trying to balance two images between two different groups of people because you're not sure which version of you people will like, so you just pretend to be both at whatever circumstance you find yourself, then I'm afraid that you're getting old, but you're not growing young. And I'm afraid that the kingdom of God does not belong to you because what you call maturity is actually an obstacle to you. That what you call maturity actually isn't. It's the obstacle that's actually keeping you from, from the kingdom of God. This leads me to my second thought. Young people form us in trust. So I'm trying to make a fine difference between vulnerability and trust because I do think that both of them are very closely related, but I think one leads to the other. You see, there's, there's calculated openness and then there's vulnerability. There's calculated openness and then there's vulnerability. One cares about the perception of others. The other one cares about connection with others. One is birthed by the fear of being hurt. The other is birthed by the possibility of being loved. I could be open. Shoot, any of us could be open. But I guarantee you all of us will be calculated about what we share. We've even made sharing or openness or vulnerability kind of like kitsch a little bit. You know? Like, I'll share this, but I won't share that. I'll share this because it feels like sharing this kind of thing right now feels like the trend. It's easy to share this and not that. It's calculated is what I mean to say. You look at the scope of your life, I almost imagine it like an EQ board, right? If I was a, if I was, I was a sound engineer and my life and the different aspects and relationships of my life were these different dials, I said, well, ah, I'm going to turn this aspect of my life up, but I'm going to turn this one down, or I'm going to turn the perception that this person has of me up and, and the perception that this person has of me down. It, I look at the board of my life and I'm calculated about it. But that, those calculations are birthed out of the fear that we won't get hurt. I don't, 
excuse me, I don't want to get hurt. So I EQ my life in a way that everyone likes it. One is birth from fear of being hurt. The other one is birth of possibility of being loved. For children, trusting is easier than most. Really, I mean, we see this in many ways with our children. Again, whether you're a coach, whether you're a mentor, an auntie, an uncle, a mom or a dad, you realize that trust comes easier to children in many ways. They don't always trust, but it seems to come easier to children. Once you've come to terms with your need as a child, you're usually ready to trust. You've come to terms with the fact that you have needs. You are less capable than this big human being in front of you, so you tend to just trust what they're doing. You follow their lead a bit easier. But for adults, it's very different, isn't it? For adults, it is difficult to trust. For those of us that have gone through a little more hardship, for those of us that have gone through a little more uh, betrayal, those of us that have gone through a bit more pain, trusting is a huge challenge. And I say this as a dad of a 15-year-old, that as parents, because of that, we usually make trust more challenging for our kids. Why? Because we make our homes unsafe. Because we assume, and in some cases wisely assume, that kids will go through their own fair share of hurts, which they do. But we assume that that will be the entirety of their lives. So we become helicopter parents. We watch their every step. We curate every experience for them so that it's super safe. And ironically, it becomes unsafe when they leave your house. We make our homes unsafe when we don't let our kids show up at, as, their, as themselves. Because we, we can't handle themselves. You know, one of the things that I've realized as a parent, the more that I engage with my teenager, yo, my teenager's really wrecking me, man, for real. Like, I love that kid. I love him. I love him. I love him. He's teaching me so much about life. (laughs) And one of the things that I've realized is most difficult in parenting. Some of the biggest conflicts that I have with my teenager More than often, and this is me just being vulnerable and honest, more than often the conflicts that I have with my teenagers is because I'm not comfortable with the decisions he's making. It's because I'm not ready to see my son become something other than what makes me comfortable. So because of that, I create this environment where he kind of makes the decisions that I would have made and that I want him to make. Why? Because I can't handle him outside of what I want for him. Yo, I know I'm saying some real crazy things and I don't have the time to unpack all of it, but this is, this is why love and relationship is so risky. This is what makes, in fact, this is what makes the relationship between God and his creation so crazy. Because when he created humanity, when he created Adam and Eve, guess what he gave them? Agency. He gave them agency. Why? So that love could be authentic. But, but, but what happens when you give your children or your creation agency is that they can choose not to be with you. <laughs> when you give someone agency because you want love to be authentic, this is why love is a risk because they can choose not to be with you. And this is what makes parenting risky. This is what makes love in the relationship of parent and child so risky because they can begin to make decisions that don't have you at the center. I can't handle my son being something other than what makes me comfortable, and he knows it. I feel like he knows it. I feel like that dude knows it, and he's just like, yeah, dog, what's up now? 
You know, and I'm just like, ooh, man, I just want to be like my dad and just be like, I just knock him out, right? Right? You know, because, you know, my parents were immigrants. I grew up in the 80s and 90s. My parents ain't had time to be emotionally smart with me. Like, they not got, they not got no time to create a space for conversation. My dad is coming off a double shift. He's like, yeah, let's talk about what you did in school. He's like, nah, I'm talking, you're listening, right? Or I'm smacking you around and you taking it. You know what I mean? Like, I ain't got time to be emotionally smart with my kids, right? But we make our environment at home with our children unsafe because we can't handle who they want to be. (laughs) And I know that's scary because they may want to be something outside of the values that you created for your home. That's real. But boundaries don't often do what we think they do. Boundaries are helpful. Listen, we got tons of them at the crib. But with my teenager, I'm realizing that they don't do as much as honesty, openness, and vulnerability does. I can't just tell my son, no, you're not doing that just because I said so. I can. I can say that. But what will happen in him internally won't be valuable. And all he'll do is wait for the moment where I can't tell him what to do. Instead, if I'm a bit more open and a bit more flexible with my boundaries and allow for conversation and dialogue, again, I have a teenager, so for those of you that may not engage with teenagers as much, this is very different from a child, right? So I'm speaking from the vantage point of a teenager. But if I'm a bit more open and flexible with my boundaries, I'm able to allow dialogue to happen, which is the beginning of transformation, When we can't handle them being themselves, we create this unsafe environment. And what that results in is a child who begins to believe that it is safer to pretend than it is to trust that it's okay for them to show up as themselves. By virtue of creating these unsafe spaces for your children, simply because you can't handle their vulnerability... And who they are when they are vulnerable. You end up creating a script in their minds. That's going to inform the way that they live the rest of their lives. And that script will tell them it is safer for you to pretend to be someone else. Than it is for you to show up as yourselves. And what they forfeit. And this is why this is so important. And what they forfeit because they're pretending is the opportunity to be transformed in the way that God desires for them to be transformed. Because God cannot transform who you pretend to be. He transforms who you are. This is particularly why, this is particularly why the idea to invite someone to deny themselves can be particularly dangerous sometimes. Here's what I mean. I want people to deny uh, themselves and, 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 and follow the light. Take, take up the cross, deny yourself. But you cannot deny what you first don't accept. You cannot deny or surrender what you, don't, what you don't first embrace as part of yourself. So that now that I've embraced it as part of myself, now that I've accepted that this aspect, good, bad, ugly, light and dark, is part of who I am, now I can come to God. Now I can come to the cross and say, God, can you take this? But if I live my life pretending that I don't have these things, if I live my life pretending that I am not these things, then telling someone to deny themselves is a misnomer. You keep them from formation. You keep them from transformation because they cannot change what they first don't embrace. You see, what vulnerability of a child offers us is the opportunity to see all of ourselves. When I look at my son, I'm challenged to to see more of myself, our needs, our limitations, our hopes and dreams, but also the potential of failure of those dreams. 
It scares us. It terrifies us. So in response, oftentimes what we do is that we live out of pride. When we say things like, I can do this alone. I will my way into this. I don't need anyone. In the end, I only have myself. You know, it's crazy. I I think that some people in our culture, we often admire independence. (laughs) Um, In my experience, independence is not a sign of maturity. Oftentimes, it's a sign of trauma. (laughs) Sometimes... uh, Independence is often perceived or confused as a sign of maturity when, in fact, I think it's a sign and an indicator of trauma. You've been left aside to do things, to fend for yourself. I have so many of my own experiences and the experience of friends that are incredibly independent. and, 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 And for so many years, I've admired that. And the more I've gotten to know them, the more vulnerability breaks the doors open, the more that I realize that that independence is really the response to trauma. I've got to do this on my own. I have nobody else. It's not that they want to be independent, but that they believe they have to be independent. It's either we respond with pride or we respond by collapsing ourselves into toxic shame. And in our toxic shame, we believe that because of our needs and limitation and our sins, we have to hide who we are. Because in our toxic toxic shame, humility is the same as humiliation. Failure is the same as being useless. And inability or capacity is the same as being worthless. But church, the greater tragedy is that in our pride, we believe that independence is ultimately an indicator of maturity, but it's not. It even comes out in the advice that we often can give to young people. Wait till you get older. Wait till you get older, you'll see. It's almost as if we're building this world of hurt, which is real, but through the lens of pessimism and hopelessness. Wait till you get older, you'll see. The older we get, The more hardship we experience, the easier it is for us to live distrusting lives. And the more we distrust, the easier it becomes to hide who we are and what we may be feeling at any given moment, which I believe is the greatest obstacle to any transformation that God wants us to experience. If you hide who you are, then who do you expect God to transform? Who do you expect God to transform if you keep hiding? I realized, I used to think um, that any given moment, and again, this, this has been such a revelation to me in my relationship with my teenager in particular. I used to believe that at any given moment, any given moment, I should say, had the power for me to be transformed because God was there. And, and let, me be, let me be very clear about what I mean about that. I do believe that transformation comes from God. But I used to believe that any given moment came with the possibility of transformation because God was there alone. And then I realized that there was someone else that absolutely needed to be there in order for transformation to happen. Me. I needed to be there. Transformation doesn't happen if I don't show up in my fullest self, in my brokenness, in my humiliation, in my fear, in my fragility, in my insecurity, in my doubt. If, if I don't show up, who's God going to transform? This has such huge implications on the way we pray. <laughs> This has such implications on how we view prayer. Do you show up in prayer? Do you spend more time talking than you do listening? 
you know, I'm learning so much, as I've already said, from my teenager, not only because of the things that he says. I mean, he do be, he do be dropping some stuff. And I'm like, damn, that was smart. That was really good, bro. <laughs> it's like you learned it from your dad. No, it's like, yo, you, that's, that was crazy what you just said. Not only because of the things that he say, says, am I learning so much, but because of the dynamics of how we relate to one another. You know, just the way that we engage at, at the crib, outside of the just the dynamics of relationship with my son teach me so much. And by using children as an example, Jesus is highlighting all vulnerable groups. Because everyday vulnerable people are trying to get to Jesus. Every day, vulnerable groups of people are trying to get to Jesus. But from many angles, they're kept from, from him. And sometimes the church is the biggest obstacle. Man, I've been there. So many vulnerable groups of people are always trying to get to Jesus. And the church is the biggest obstacle sometimes. In the same way that the disciples we're the biggest obstacle in our text today. Children trying to get to Jesus. The disciples out here thought they was holier than everyone. It's like, yo, man, we can't be wasting Jesus' time like that. Jesus is like, man, y'all still don't get it. How are you guys? Y'all been the one walking with me for all this time. How do y'all not understand that it's to such as these that the kingdom belongs to? But despite the obstacles, despite the church sometimes getting in the way, Jesus still takes a hold of the vulnerable and honors them. It's in the very vulnerability of Jesus, one with great power, that we see the best use of it. In a great sense of humility and power, he shows us what vulnerability is capable of. He shows us what trust is capable of. When Jesus, the all-powerful one, the one who decided to lay aside equality with God, as Philippians reminds us, uses his power to show vulnerability and trust in the will of his father, despite the fact that he's out here sweating blood and be like, yo, is there another way of doing this? I'd love that option. Option B, anyone? Despite it, Jesus said, but I know something about vulnerability and trust that the world has yet to see, and I'm going to display it. And the cross and the empty tomb is the greatest example of the capability and possibility of vulnerability and trust. Jesus calls us into this same invitation. Jesus calls us to trust his invitation, to trust his generosity, to trust his ability to make a way to him despite the obstacles. Jesus calls us to trust him in our fears, in our shame, and in our guilt, to trust him with our lives when we have grown callous because of hurt and betrayal. To trust him with our lives when we've grown dejected and have given up on ourselves. To trust him even when we want to make our kids as callous as we are. I suspect that God is going to use painful moments as he's shown all of us, I'm sure. To break the pride and the toxic shame that we live with. That keeps us from the kingdom and from connection. Jesus, on behalf... Uh, on our behalf, embraced the vulnerability of suffering and dying out of trust for his Father's will for him and all of creation in order to bring us into his own. I want to close with this um, story that I heard from Father Richard Rohr, Catholic priest based out of New Mexico. Uh, he was uh, doing this podcast with a young lady, a young mother, <clears throat> And they were talking about uh, time with the Lord. What does time with the Lord, time of reflection and intimacy, meditation and prayer looks like? And um, 
you know, the young mother, uh, they were saying some really beautiful things. Um, and here's some of the ways that you can create space in the mornings, in the afternoons, in the evening. Being very practical about how to make time for reflection with God. Um, and the young mother stops, you know, uh, Father Richard, and she says, uh, she asks him a really personal question. She says, hey, look, I have two young children where I'm constantly, you know, my mornings are, my mornings, my days, my every moment, my every waking moment is for them. Holding them, feeding them, changing them, running after them. She says, how do I find time with God? How do I find time with God without feeling like I'm betraying my motherhood? Or like I'm betraying my children? How do I get to experience God? How can I meet with God? How can I hear with God? How can I unload the God? And this answer that he offers is certainly not exhaustive, but it is beautiful. <clears throat> he looks at her and he says, so you've been trying to get to God and access him. She's like, I try. It just seems like I don't have enough minutes and hours in the day to seek him out, to find him. And he pauses for a moment, kind of just looks up, reflects. The very first thing he says to her, he says, I'm sorry, it's so hard. That's not, what, that's not what was profoundly impactful to me, though. I thought that was beautiful, that he took the time to apologize and kind of sympathize with her. He says, I'm sorry it's been so difficult for you to meet with God, to find him, even though you've longed to be with him in these moments of a busy season of life. And then he pauses again, kind of looks up. And he says, could I tell you that God has also been dying to spend time with you? And she says, well, where has he been? How, how can I find the time? I've been so busy with my kids. And he says, God has been dying to spend time with you. And he realizes how busy you are in this season. So he came to you through your kids. I thought that was so profound. And what was profound about that to me, at least in that season when I heard it, was our children have more to offer us about the nature of God and the way of his kingdom than our transactional culture has led us to believe. May we trust that God comes to us. Emmanuel. That God comes to us as he himself came as a child. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Uh, you're kind and you're gracious. Holy Spirit, uh, may you do for us well, what I never could, what my hours of study never could, and that is to open our hearts and our eyes to see you. God, take whatever you may find useful, Holy Spirit, from this time. And bring life and joy and hope to us this morning. Thank you for the children in our lives, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.